This is Generation Justice. I'm Quetzbalin Mexica. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. And I'm Edgar Cruz. Tonight, we're joined by storytellers and organizers who are shining light on issues impacting our community and doing work to make it great. First, journalist and writer Sam Quinones talks to us about his latest book, which dives deep into the heroin and opiate epidemic in America. Later, we'll be checking in with Strong Families New Mexico as we launch our new regular segment, Community Game Changers, which highlights social justice organizations here in New Mexico. To top it all off, we have a great collection of events on our community calendar, so get comfortable as we start off with some tunes. Here is Cold Turkey by the Plastic Ono Band. In the past, Generation Justice has dedicated entire shows to the crisis of heroin use in our state. Sadly, the problem has only worsened since then. New Mexico is still one of the top five states in the U.S. for opiate and heroin overdose. Journalist and writer Sam Quinones wrote a book titled Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, which details how this epidemic spread so quickly throughout our communities. Sam will have a reading of his book, followed by a panel discussion at the African American Performing Arts Center at 310 San Pedro, Monday, April 11th, beginning at 5 p.m. Now, here is G.J. Fellow, Kateri Zuni, with Sam Quinones. My name is Kateri Zuni, and I am speaking with Sam Quinones. Sam is a journalist and writer of the acclaimed book Dreamland, which gives an eye-opening and poignant account of the opiate epidemic in the U.S. Welcome to Generation Justice. Sam, can I have you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Sam Quinones. I'm a journalist and author of the book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Tell me, how did you become interested in the topic? Really, I, I kind of backed into this story. I had lived in Mexico for 10 years. I had done a lot of work writing about immigration, small Mexican villages, many parts of the country. And in the 1990s into the 2000s, that's really where my focus was. I came back to the United States, got a job with the LA Times in 2004. That, that year and really into 2005, the Mexican drug war kicked off. And in 2008, I was put on a team of, of reporters to cover that drug war. My job was really to cover how drugs were, were trafficked across the United States once they crossed the border. And so that's what I was doing. And I came upon a series of stories of overdose deaths to black tar heroin in Huntington, West Virginia, a state that was unaware that it had any demand for heroin at all. And yet here were people dying of uh, heroin that was made only in Mexico and the quantities were enough to kill lots of people in a very short period of time. So the way I entered this story was really trying to understand how Mexican heroin dealers were doing such good business. I really had missed entirely the whole pain revolution because I had been in Mexico during the years when it was happening. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. So I really backed into it, and it was only after getting into that story that I realized the real story, the big story, was that uh, this pain revolution that had changed the minds of doctors all across the country and turned them all, many of them, into converts to very aggressive uh, prescribing of these pills, and that that is what had led people in states like West Virginia and many others to grow addicted to heroin. 
and then realizing, oh, behind that is a much bigger story of, of pills, U.S. medicine, and doctors' uh, prescribing habits. Just kind of getting into the book right off, Sam, as you write it, the opiate epidemic really has several moving parts. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the major contributors that you identified? Sure. Really, the first is a revolution in pain management in the United States that really promoted by kind of a young uh, group of pain specialists across the country, aided in that by the pharmaceutical uh, companies that made prescription narcotic painkillers. And it held that we were a country in pain, an epidemic of pain, and we needed to treat it. And really, we had been falling down on the job because we had a tool with which to treat. And this became, through the beginning in the late 80s and and into the the 1990s, really became conventional wisdom, promoted, as I said, by those two groups, but also by certain hospital institutions in America. A lot of pain specialists kind of got on that bandwagon. And eventually, they convinced, well, many, many doctors across the country, primary care doctors, ER docs, and the rest, that this was the case and that they ought to be prescribing these pills far more aggressively, far more liberally than they had been up to that point. These, These pills all contain drugs that are opiates that are very similar to heroin. Well, many people did get addicted. Many people got addicted from using these pills exactly as doctors prescribed. Others got addicted because there was now a massive new uh, supply of pills out there, and a lot of it leaked into the black market, and a lot of people used it recreationally, abused it, and got addicted. And many of those folks, a good number, it's not clear how many, but hundreds of thousands of folks, eventually switched to heroin because heroin now was coming from Mexico, which made it far cheaper, far more potent, far, far more prevalent, and a real cheap alternative to the pills on the street, which were, which were extraordinarily expensive. Those three things over a period of like 20 years and some other stuff, that's a bare, bare bones idea of, of how we got to the point where we are uh, today. Yeah, thank you. In the book, we spend a lot of time in kind of those small towns. New Mexico, as you know, has highest rates of heroin use and overdose, especially in northern New Mexico. Can you give us an idea of the role that New Mexico has played in all this? In my own research, I came across the guy who basically brought black tar heroin to Santa Fe, to the Chimayo areas. That's my Nola Valley. That's really uh, this problem. And, and I think that was a telling part of it. People had lived, not well, but had lived with heroin addiction for decades mm-hmm. because the heroin that they were using was a lot of it, I believe, was coming from, the, from Vietnam at one point. Some of it was coming from Mexico, but it was very diluted. And these guys came with very, very high-potency heroin, and immediately people began dying. I think 2% of the area, the town of Chimayo, died in a two-year period because these were veteran heroin addicts, yet they were used to a heroin that was much, much weaker. And that is really the story of this whole epidemic. Now that the heroin mostly comes now from Mexico, the other cartels, real cartels, have gotten involved in it in the last couple of years. And so what we're seeing now all across the country is what happened in New Mexico in the late 1990s, which was uh, new, new heroin coming in from Mexico. And what critique would you give of the media coverage that you have seen that has surrounded the issue? Well, I tell you, first, there wasn't a lot of it until the last year or so. I mean, I, I began this book 2012. Part of the problem was that the parents 
of the kids were unwilling to talk. People have said, you know, this is only an epidemic because there's lots of white kids dying, and that, that's why it's getting the attention. My response is, no, it was quiet because it was a white drug. The white families who have kids who are dying were mortified, embarrassed, horrified that their kids would get addicted to this drug that they believe was like the worst of all worst of illegal drugs. And so they kept quiet. And that's the situation I found for the first two, three years when I was writing my books. Some few were very much in the news, but compared to the numbers of kids who were dying, it was just was, wasn't even, there was no comparison. It was just a minuscule, minuscule uh, number. Now you're seeing parents put heroin addiction in the obituaries of their kids on Facebook. They're on, they're on parent groups. There are all kinds of very public ways that they're acknowledging this, but that is only in the last year. And it's really because of that um, that we've had lots more um, uh, coverage of this, honestly. It, it, it has become a, a, a thing to write about. And, it, and of course, people now are tripping over themselves. Uh, everybody is you know, on the bandwagon to cover this thing now, whereas um, my feeling was that this has been going on, as I said, for 15 years. No, one's really, no one really covered it much. No one covered the heroin, the pills to heroin connection that to me was obvious. I could see that like in 2009, but um, this was something that I was convinced of six years before. And what I found is now everybody wants to cover this topic, and it's getting kind of the press that it deserved for uh, years ago. Now it's all of a sudden on everybody's radar. I think you're right. It is an obvious connection. And when you write about, you know, drug companies kind of abusing statistics to make it look like an mm -hmm. opiate derivative drug could somehow be non-habit forming or non-addictive, just seems right. so counterintuitive to me, and I wonder, like, how is that even possible? Well, that's a very good question, and that's, uh, I, I think partly what happened was this. Americans became almost childish in their demands to be fixed. And so what ended up happening was all these doctors became kind of under the gun. And at the same time they were hearing this, they were also hearing from the from the pharmaceutical companies and you know what we have an answer for you we have a solution and it's easy and it's quick and you can end those appointments with your patient by pulling out a prescription pad and writing out a prescription it's so easy it's quick and for a while it does take care of the pain the problem is it doesn't take care of it forever it masks it and a lot of people get addicted to it and etc but there was pressure on doctors doctors are need to reassess what they did what they're doing, I believe, very, very deeply. But they were not the only ones here involved. We as Americans began to have this very simplistic attitude. We didn't want things that were complicated. We just wanted something to, to fix, like one guy said in the, in the book. They viewed their, their bodies as cars, and doctors were car mechanics, and we were supposed to fix them. And that attitude, I believe, was really prevalent in, in the country, still is, I think. And that led doctors to look aggressively for some kind of solution there the doctors most doctors mean very well they want to help people and they they, they felt that this was uh something that they absolutely had to do and along come these kind of specious studies or non-studies or whatever you want to call them and the pharmaceutical companies taking it door to door with this very very aggressive sales pitch this was for years when there was this, uh, a sales force arms race in the pharmaceutical industry where every company was hiring more and more in the early 90s there was like thirty-five thousand pharmaceutical sales reps by 2003 there was 120,000 you know it was like 
like this massive sales and, and little by little the pressures on doctors there were financial pressures as well you can make a lot of money prescribing these pills etc all of that kind of changed and that's how you create a new conventional wisdom i guess yeah um i've i've heard you mention before that this book specifically the title is kind of a metaphor for america can you explain yeah. a little bit of that yes i mean the book comes from a swimming pool that existed in a town a rust belt town but at one time was a very thriving town in southern ohio portsmouth ohio is the name of the town and this town had a steel mill, it had shoe factories, it had a bunch of other businesses, a booming Main Street, uh, backed with businesses, and a real community. I mean, it had, all of this was pro provided this kind of immune system to a lot of social ills. The steel factory leaves in 1980. The, the shoe factories have been leaving slowly, more of them leave. Main Street, uh, the people begin to leave. Main Street empties out. And in 19, 1993, they closed this pool. This pool was like almost like the soul of the town. It was this place where everybody looked out for one another, where everybody saw one another. It was a very egalitarian place. It was a place where there was always more. The guy who owned the, the pool for a long time was a shoe factory owner as well, and he didn't need the pool's money, so he reinvested the pool's money into improving the, the grounds and buying more grounds. And it grew and grew until it was enough for everybody. Everybody was there. You know, everybody could be a part of this. And it was a wonderful place for everyone to grow up in community, not mm -hmm. isolated. The town turned inward. It was half the size. It had been uh, Walmart literally replaced uh, the pool as a social spot where the only place you actually saw anybody anymore was at Walmart. You know, there's no public place where you could socialize anymore mm -hmm. and this left the town extraordinarily uh, vulnerable and been extraordinarily vulnerable to a drug this drug was so isolating heroin and opiates are so isolating they break everybody into like little individuals and nobody wants to be a part of anything and you're fatalistic and that destroys the town further and and from that i, I drew a few lessons but one was that that isolation is heroin's natural habitat and i tried to understand what is the common denominator between a very poor town now like portsmouth and a very wealthy town like charlotte or portland oregon and the the one common denominator why do these three towns all have the same problem and the common denominator is that the isolation we feel in, in america today is in all three of those places we we may be wealthy we may be middle class we may be poor but the isolation is tremendous we're all no one is, is outside anymore parks nobody plays in the park they dug up dreamland and they put in literally they put in a parking lot that's exactly what they did and all of this it seems to me that the story of the pool in portsmouth ohio was the country's story in a certain way even though uh, much of the country is doing far better of course than portsmouth ohio it nevertheless was this a story of, of how if you create enough isolation, you will break down the societal immune system that your community has to a drug like heroin, and you will be awash. And that's kind of what we've done coast to coast, seems to me. Yeah, that's an important lesson to learn, embedding your Oh, community. I think so. It, it was not what I set out to write. I mean, I, I thought I was writing a crime book, a drug book, and in turn, it became a story more about who we become and what we become as Americans. Okay, great. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your work in this book and as a journalist. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. 
Thank you so much, Sam, for that eye-opening discussion on opiate addiction and overprescribing. I'm saddened and infuriated at the high number of lives lost to opiate and heroin addiction. Sam, thank you for enlightening us on the damage being done to our communities by prescription drug abuse. Like Westphaline mentioned, it is incredibly infuriating that our communities are being devoured by opiate addiction. Again, Sam will have a reading and panel discussion tomorrow at 5 p.m. at the African American Performing Arts Center. Now, here is Choices Away for Alex by Charles Hamilton. Better or average, never or have to, forever or past due. Heaven or back at you, weapon of passiveness, paper or plastic, hater or fanatic. Bow your head and close your eyes as the hours going by. Decide if power is even on the line. The powers that see haven't cowered in the least, but my faith looks up to thee. You're listening to Generation Justice. Tonight we've heard from Sam Quinones, a former LA Times reporter who spent over 30 years covering stories regarding immigration, drug trafficking, and gangs. Thanks, Quetz. Now we're excited to introduce our latest and greatest segment. It's called Community Game Changers. Community Game Changers will be a regular staple of our radio program to honor the organizations, both new and established, who have dedicated their time and passion to keeping our communities healthy, happy, and engaged through social justice. Strong Families New Mexico is one of those community leaders who advocates for families of all shapes, colors, and sizes to ensure they are protected and empowered. Now, here's GJ Fellow, Polly Donetkla, with Jessica Collins of Strong Families New Mexico. My name is Polly Donetkla, and I'm here with Jessica Collins, the New Mexico Program Director of Forward Together. Welcome to Generation Justice, Jessica. Thank you for having me. To start off, can you just tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I have been in New Mexico for over 15 years now, been with Strong Families New Mexico since last year. Prior to doing this civic engagement work in New Mexico, I was doing media justice work for over 10 years. You mentioned you just started um, working at Strong Families and Forward Together. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So Strong Families New Mexico, we are actually a state-based action site of Forward Together, which is a national organization, a small but mighty national organization based in Oakland, but with staff all over the country now. And we have a a small team here in Albuquerque because Ford Together is really committed to social change happening throughout the country, but also very committed to the work happening in New Mexico, both on the ground and the policy change that happens, you know, during the legislative session and in between sessions. What makes the New Mexico program so unique? I think that we're unique in a lot of ways. We are really committed to centering the communities most impacted and making sure that their voices are heard and their stories are told within policy change. Also making sure that there's culture shift happening at the same time. We're also multi-issue and we work with all families in New Mexico so that no one is left behind. So that means, you know, grandparents raising grandchildren and single parents, queer families. And we define family very broadly, too, that it's not just blood related, but that it's that can be blood or affinity. So chosen family is also included in the families that we're working alongside with and that we're bringing to the center of our movements. 
I really like uh, the broad definition that strong families has of what it is to be a family. I hadn't really thought of like the definition of like what a family was before in such a way where I was like, oh yeah, there's like all these multitudes of like different families. And I don't know why I just like never thought about that. But yeah, I like that. And you mentioned that strong families has an emphasis on culture change and on shifting culture. So can you talk to me a little bit more about how Strong Families does that? Sure. So we have a number of you know, campaigns and projects and programs that run both in New Mexico and also nationwide throughout the year. So next month is, is Mama's Day. So that is one of our culture shift campaigns where we work with artists and team up with them, pay them for their beautiful artwork, and they do a piece that represents mamas in some way. And in that, we make sure that we are really going outside of what the hallmark version of what a Mother's Day card should look like and has looked like for many years and showing a wider representation of what motherhood looks like. So including chosen mothers, uh, mothers of all ages and races and backgrounds, and we'll have a website where you can send a message to a mama that you know, that you love, and pick one of these pieces of art. So that's one, you know, culture shift. We bring in art and have that really go alongside the policy change that we want to see happen so that everyone is included. Out of all the amazing work that you all do, what are you most proud of? I think that it's hard to just pick one thing. And again, I think for our work, everything is connected. So we say, you know, we do year-round civic engagement, but pretty much everything that we do, we call civic engagement. I think it is that that piece around bringing people together to come up with solutions that is a pattern to all the work we do. And I'm so proud, too, that we've been expanding our work into four counties. So we're not just centered around Albuquerque and around the Roundhouse in Santa Fe when it, the legislative session is happening, but that we're also working in McKinley County and Doña Ana County and also building out our work in Rio Reba County, and that we're doing it in alignment with our partners and with community members. So we have a network of over 20 organizations across issues, and we bring them in so that we can build power together and we're not doing this alone. I think it is really that building power together piece that is just so important to me. And I can really appreciate that as a indigenous woman who grew up in McKinley County. Everything is so centered around Bernalillo County that I really appreciate that your work is going across the state to other parts that are in real need, especially McKinley County, which is, you know, the poorest county in New Mexico. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And and I'll just add, you know, one thing to that, too, is that when we're building, you know, outside of Albuquerque, we're also doing it in the long term. We're not just saying we're going to come in and do this project and leave, but that we want to be, you know, working with community around change for years to come. Even just this last legislative session, we brought groups of people 
all types of communities and backgrounds that came from across the state. There were over 180 people that came for our Strong Families New Mexico Legislative Day. And I think that is like a really significant moment to just see what Strong Families New Mexico has been building, but alongside our partners and the families. So buses of people coming up from Doña Ana County and from Gallup and other parts of McKinley County, from northern New Mexico, coming with their issues, whether they wanted to talk about jobs or transportation or broadband access. And we also had a, such an age range, too, from a, you know, a nine-month-old baby to elders in their 70s coming to talk to their own representatives about what matters to them most. That is so powerful, just that image of New Mexicans from all across the state coming together and feeling powerful enough in themselves to go and talk to legislators because, you know, as a young person, I know how intimidating that can be. And just just the image of that is just really powerful. What is one thing you want the community to know about your organization? I would want the community to know that uh, Strong Families New Mexico is a resource, whether you want to know how to get a message out to a decision maker, whether it's getting registered to vote, uh, any kinds of issue. We are here as a resource. We want to hear your story. We want to figure out how we can really, again, build power together and move together so that change can happen. We have a website, strongfamiliesmovement.org. We know many people don't have internet access to in our beautiful state of New Mexico. Uh, So we can also be reached. Our office number is 505-842-8070. Those all sound so amazing. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I just want to say thank you for having Strong Families New Mexico. We love the work of Generation Justice and uh, are here to also build power with you in 2016. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming in and talking with us about Strong Families. I really appreciate it. And especially when it comes around narrative change and changing the narrative of what a family looks like and what a family is. And it's so inclusive. I really, really like that about Strong Families. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Jessica, as well as everyone at Strong Families New Mexico for your work at the legislature and service that works towards improving the lives of families. I greatly appreciate what you do for women and youth. Strong Families New Mexico expands protection and opportunity for families all over New Mexico. Thank you, Jessica, for your intersectional work with media justice and community outreach. Now, let's get back into some music. Here is Miss Brown to You by Billie Holiday. Like listening to this show live or maybe on the two-week archive. 
then there's no better time to kick in a few dollars to help pay the bills. Because everyone who donates now is entered in the drawing to win a salsa bicycle, a good crossover for street and dirt road racing, and valued at $1,699, donated by two-wheel drive in Albuquerque. Winner will be drawn Monday, April 18th at noon Mountain Time. Donate and register for the drawing at KUNM.org. Thank you to everyone who's clicked to donate. Generation Justice has been an amazing platform to empower the voices of youth just like us. I'm so lucky to be a part of a group that uses the power of radio for social change. While I haven't been here at, so at Generation Justice long, the skills I've learned here will last me a lifetime. I'm honored to be part of something so special. Thank you to everyone who's donated. If you haven't yet, visit KUNM.org. New Mexico has always had plenty of fun to get into. Let's join Lucero Velasquez and Derek Toledo for our community calendar. Thanks, Edgar and Quetz. I'm your calendar host, Lucero Velasquez. And I'm your other host, Derek Toledo. Tonight we'll be sharing upcoming events happening around the community. Our first event is a roundtable discussion and potluck hosted by Quote Unquote Inc. This important event will take place Tuesday, April 12th at 5.30 p.m. at the ABQ Center for Peace and Justice, 202 Harvard Southeast. They will be discussing how to save free speech and public access and how together we can fight corporate greed. And just to mention a few of the guest speakers that will be there, Willard Hunter, a citizen investigator, Colleen Gorman, a public access producer and teacher, Laura Dale, a free speech activist, Don Davis from the Oasis radio station, and Steve Rainieri, the director of Quote Unquote. The event is being organized by Burke Media, so for more information, you can email contact at burkemedia.com. Yo, Lucero, how do you feel about the park test? I don't, because it's the first step to privatizing education. I'm just upset that now it's a graduation requirement. Well, now's your chance to engage in discussion with the panel of last year's walkout organizers and other professionals. Rad! First, we walked out, now we opt out. Town hall meeting will be Wednesday, April 13th from 6 to 8. This will be at the African American Arts Center and Exhibit Hall. 310 San Pedro Drive, Northeast. A huge thanks to the parents and teachers for an educational community with the Southwest Organizing Project. Working Classroom, Albuquerque Caucus of Rank and File Educators, who will all be hosting. Janelle Astorga, co-leader of the Albuquerque High School Park Walkouts, will be speaking, which to me is super empowering, knowing that she helped organize the walkouts last year during her senior year at Albuquerque High. The author of More Than a Score, Jesse Halkopan, will also be there. For more information, contact Emma Sandoval, emma at swop.net. Hey, Derek, you know no who Noam Chomsky is? Not even a little bit. Who's that? He's probably the most important intellectual alive on the defending characteristics of our time. There's a documentary happening at the Guild next Thursday, April 14th. Right. I did see that when I was driving by the Guild. It's called The Requiem for the American Dream, and it starts at like 4.30, right? Exactly, and ends at 6 p.m. I heard it talks about key moments in history and the cumulative effects of racialization and control of wealth. For more information, you can call the Guild Cinema at 505-255-1848. Then next weekend on the 16th, there is a Leonard Peltier Defense Committee meeting. At the meeting, they'll be giving us an update on Leonard Peltier and giving more information about a National Student Day of Action. For those of you who don't know, Leonard Peltier was part of the American Indian Movement in the 70s and was indicted on controversial charges. 
He has spent his life in prison since then. You can come to this event happening at the Albuquerque Center for Peace and Justice on 202 Harvard Drive, Southeast 87106. The meeting is from 12 to 1 p.m. and the number to request more information is 505-301-5423. Hey Derek, didn't you take flamenco classes? <laughs> Wait, what? Who have you been talking to? You told me earlier today. Well, you should definitely check out the Castro Show happening April 14th, 15th, and 16th at the National Sponic Cultural Center. Oh, oh yeah, I, I remember. I do like bragging about my dance moves, but my experience with flamenco is that it really does entail beauty in artistic dancing. It's just really culture-oriented culture and stoic movements with the dancers wearing wooden shoes. I agree, and the music is so intricate and rhythmic. Yeah, Yaichiro's yeah. 30th season will feature dances from the American Flamenco Repertory Company, directed by Joaquin Insanius. For more information, you can call the National Hispanic Cultural Center at 505-724-4771. Or you can email Melissa Harris at melissa at nationalinstituteoflamenco.org. Our next event is the Respect 140. A Pecha Kucha style event where 20 speakers and performers share their stories relating to reproductive health in just 140 seconds each. These speedy stories and ideas go far beyond the polarizing battles of pro-choice versus pro-life and leave you inspired to join the movement to protect reproductive health and abortion access for all New Mexicans. It's going to be hosted by Respect and them women at the Outpost Performance Space and an RSVP is required. For that, you can just hop online and go to respectnmwomen.org slash respect140. Stories will be told Tuesday, April 19th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. If you have any more questions about Respect 140, you can reach out to Rochelle Maestas at rmaestas at aclu-nm.org. Well, that concludes Community Calendar this week. I'm Derek Toledo. And I'm Lucero Velasquez. And now, back to quits. Thank you, Lucero and Derek, for the great events. Now, here's Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. the end of tonight's program we'd like to thank sam quinones for sharing your important work with us we'd also like to thank jessica collins and strong families new mexico for your outstanding dedication to our community thank you to our calendar hosts lucero velasquez derek toledo and to yusuf amer and camry umi for engineering this evening's show production assistance for tonight's show came from katery zuni george luna peña tamara kalaki christina rodriguez polly denekla jennifer lim alden bruce and roberta rayo Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
Generation Justice is funded by W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Map Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Quetzpalin Mexica. Before we end the night, we leave you some more music. Here is Gheorghe Zamfer with Mon Amour. So long as I can live with you 